Mark Bergman is director of the Center for Environmental Policy at Imperial College London and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Conservation Biology. He works on expert judgment, ecological modeling, conservation biology, and risk assessment. He has written models for biosecurity, medicine regulation, marine fisheries, forestry, irrigation, electrical power utilities, mining, and national park planning. He received a BSc from the University of New South Wales, an MSc from Macquarie University, Sydney, and a PhD from the State University of New York at Stony Brook. He has published over 250 referred papers and book chapters in seven authored books. Mark Bergman, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Nice to be here. So your book, Trusting Judgments, How to Get the Best Out of Experts, it came out in 2015, and it really challenges a lot of the assumptions we make as a society and the decision makers in government and industry. As an expert in risk analysis and environmental policy, what have you learned about getting the best out of experts, communicating to them in the language that achieves results, and how we can prioritize the areas that require the most urgent attention? Well, I mean, I could talk for three days on this topic without drawing a breath. So so please stop me when you want to redirect the conversation. It's a big topic, but the idea of expertise and expert judgment has been around and has been something that society depends upon for a long time. But there have been no serious empirical explorations of who's an expert and what a domain of expertise is and what sort of frailties are experts susceptible to. Those things haven't been addressed in an empirical way until the last 20 or 30 years. Some of this work began in the 50s with Kahneman and Tversky. They began to explore the things that make people misjudge risky situations. And that led to a, a body of research on who makes good judgments and under what circumstances for things that might affect us in various ways. But these were typically judgments about the probabilities of events and the magnitudes of their consequences. There's a domain in which we use experts to make judgments about future events, the quantities of things that we will see at some time in the future, or things that currently exist, but we don't know what they are. We don't have time yet to compile the data that we need. And we rely on expert judgments in law courts, but also rely on them, for example, we have a new disease like COVID. And we don't know yet its transmission rates. And yet we have to guess at its transmission rates to make judgments about how best to manage the population, to protect ourselves. And we rely on expert judgments for all of those circumstances. And yet we don't know who the best expert is. Who should we ask? Is it the best credentialed person? Is it the person that most people trust? If you ask two experts and you get two opinions, which one should you use? And so on and so forth. Now, that has been the focus of research uh, over the last 10 or 15 years, and we've learned some really important things that run contrary to our intuition about some of those things. Yeah. And I think also in some cases, things can be so theoretical and it reminds me of the Nietzsche line, you know, knowledge kills action. We're very good at getting around the table and sometimes it requires, you know, just practical, you know, how do you get things done? Sometimes the simplest, you know, Occam's razor, sometimes the simplest solution is the best, the most evident. We just have to start doing it and stop talking about it. So how do you identify the best expert for the problem at hand? So the, the fundamental question is, how do you know you have a good expert or how do you know who the best expert is? And it turns out that a person's credentials or their regard in which they're held by the appears is no guide to their ability to make good judgments, none whatsoever. And that's kind of confronting to the middle-aged 
experts in society who uh, hold sway in many circumstances when it comes to what we think this fact is or that fact is that we don't yet know or that we need to know. The things that we've learned, and this is not our little group, our group has made some modest contributions. There's been a large number of groups around the world in the last 10 or 15 years working on this, and these are generally very robust results. The first is that your credentials and the esteem in which you're held are no guide to your performance on questions of fact or outcomes of future events. The second thing we know is that you shouldn't ask one person. You should ask a group of people. Another thing we've learned is that the more diverse the group, the more accurate the group's judgments are. Another thing we've learned is that it's important one asks questions of a group to avoid a host of psychological frailties that can derail group judgments, anchoring availability bias, dominance effects, various other things that are pervasive and can be debilitating unless one is aware of them and deals with them through the way in which a group is facilitated. Now, if you do those things, if you say to me, I've got a very good expert here, and they're going to make judgments about these facts, I can tell you, well, I can use your expert in my group or not, but I can guarantee that if I get a group of people who understand the data and the jargon and the problem, I will generate answers that are close to the truth and better calibrated, and we will outperform your individual expert consistently and by a considerable margin. And I can do that without knowing who the expert is or what they know. Yeah, and it's a case of sometimes, you know, language can distance the effects of the everyday realities. There's all this jargon, like we lose ourselves in jargon and our specializations. Uh, but in some ways, if you go to a farm and you talk to farmers, they have so much applied knowledge of how they are directly affected by the climate. And they know their livelihood, depend. they could lose their farm dependent on the seasons and the weather. So they're not over-sophisticating it. They know the everyday reality, right? You are right. A person's qualifications, their degrees, their years of experience in a particular domain, their memberships, you know, all of that stuff doesn't make a person worse at making judgments, but it doesn't make them any better. So what it means is, for example, if we're talking about gravity waves in physics, you're probably not going to find someone off the street who understands the jargon and what's being asked. Or if you want to ask someone, what's the average lifetime of a star in the universe? You probably need to know something about astrophysics to be able to give a reasonable answer. But it doesn't mean that you need a PhD or even a degree. You can just be an interested amateur and your judgments will be as good as anyone else's, particularly if you're in the context of a group. So if we are asking questions about the weather, about climate, about climate change and about the variability in weather, those, the context, the jargon, the data are well understood. And we can ask a lot of different people who wouldn't ordinarily be considered to be experts. They're not meteorologists, they're not atmospheric physicists, they're not climate scientists. They could be farmers, as you say, they can be fishers, they can be people whose lives depend on the weather for one reason or another, which makes them interested. And they will be able to integrate information as well as anyone else. Yeah, the survival tends to spur innovation. And focus and, your mind, that's correct. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as we say, we don't want to be too far in our ivory towers that we don't know what it is like on the ground. You know, we're living in the century of the city, and I know that one of the areas of focus are how do you predict the replicability of solutions? So when you think of the scale of the city and what they can do in terms of tackling climate change, you know, this decade of transformation, you know, cities are the main drivers of creativity and innovation and consume 75% of the world's natural resources. 
systems and account for 70% of global carbon dioxide emissions. So what do you think the cities of the future are going to look like in terms of energy, transport, resource waste management, food, pollution? Oh, see, now I'm a terrible person to ask that question of uh, my understanding of urban ecology is quite limited. It's an interesting question in this context because I know a bit about ecology, I know a bit about climates and climate science, but not enough to be comfortable, which in a group situation is a good thing because then I'm inclined to listen first to other people and draw my evidence from the reasoning that other people posit or from the evidence that they provide. And in the context of cities, on the basis of my limited knowledge, I think, well, it's tough to answer. We hope that cities will become more sustainable. We hope that people living in cities will reduce their consumption of carbon-emitting fuels. But there is no global indication that the momentum in that direction is increasing appreciably. The growth of the middle classes in developing, in large developing economies of BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, the information that I have is that the consumption practices in those environments and those cultures and those places is going to accelerate. It's not going to decelerate over the next 20 or 30 years. And that generates a large amount of momentum. There are going to be a great many new cities over the next 50 years, hundreds and hundreds of cities that have more than a million people. And that growth is, we hope that the development of those cities will be built around sustainable practices. That's an optimistic view. I understand it's a big question. The Covenant of Mayors is betting a lot on cities as, be, you know, potentially being living labs. I just thought it was interesting on this note, perhaps not just of cities, but, you know, it's about replicability. You know, what can be modeled in a large or a medium-sized city can then be rolled out to the rest of the country. So we see them as, you know, like leading the way potentially if we manage it right. And definitely the new mega cities have this great opportunity because they don't have to rebuild their energy systems. They can be sustainable from the ground up. That's the hope. Whether we achieve it, whether we have the will, uh, the social will, and people tend to say, well, we need the political will. I really think it's social will. If you and I and people like us want this to happen and there are enough of us living in cities, created at least infrastructure and the way of delivering goods and services, the things that make us get out and ride our bicycle rather than drive our car and live close to where we work and consume products that are, that are grown near me and all of that sort of stuff. Whether we take those steps depends upon you and me more than it does on individual politicians. And whether we have the will to do this, I don't know. In my bleaker moments, I suspect not. In my optimistic moments, I hope we do. And tell us about your work. You're the director of the Centre for Environmental Policy at yeah. Imperial College London. You know, what's the mission and some of your projects there? Well, the mission is really along the lines of the things that you've been talking about. It's, it's to sustain the evolution of society towards a sustainable way of being. It, it involves energy transitions, but it also involves dealing with the way in which people behave in cities, as we've been talking about. It, it also it involves conservation of ecosystems and landscapes, the management of human behavior. So it really deals with both the technical and physical dimensions of sustainability and the human dimensions of sustainability. And we have in our department, economists, lawyers, social scientists, engineers, chemists, physicists, it's a fabulous place to work, so diverse. We often say amongst ourselves, we could actually try and solve any problem anyone pitched to us. We've got the techniques and the skills and the knowledge base to try and solve just about any problem on the planet. So it's a great place to work. 
So you are in microcosm, a kind of living lab. We're a living research lab, yes. And speaking of your, you know, native Australia, I hadn't realized that it's, I think, one of the most biodiverse places in the world. Yes. Um, which makes it even more, you know, with the recent Black Summer and losing ancient forests, it makes it even more heartbreaking. But what are your reflections on environmental policy in Australia and some things that we can all learn and replicate? And what are other areas you feel like there's room for improvement? Well, Australia has roughly 10% of the world's biota in its shores, and the vast majority is unique to that continent. Just because it's been isolated in the Indian Pacific Ocean for such a long time, for 50 million years, and the fauna and the flora there have evolved more or less independently. And that creates, I think, an important sense of custodial responsibility. We take care of species on behalf of other countries, other peoples, other generations. That's true of all countries, but that rests particularly heavily on countries that have a lot of biodiversity. Australia... And Australians who have arrived relatively recently, the population that arrived in the last couple of hundred years, has been responsible for the elimination of 20 mammal species, and only 70 have become extinct globally in the last couple of hundred years. So Australia is responsible for a disproportionate number of extinctions globally. The rate of land clearance in Australia exceeds that in most other countries, and on a per capita basis, it exceeds the land clearance rate of any other country. Our global carbon emissions per capita are amongst the highest in the world, second or third highest, and occasionally have been highest. So our environmental record is not good. It has a reputation of being clean and green and kind of removed from the world's trials, but the environmental impacts on a relatively small population on a relatively large and diverse continent have been disproportionate. So I'm not proud of Australia's environmental record. Some of the things that happen there are great. The initiatives to protect land and the initiatives to, to create marine parks have been substantial. A lot of the technology and a lot of the science about conservation biology, the way in which one approaches problems and tries to solve problems, has come out of the Australian scientific community simply because our problems are so pressing and so extensive. But the broad picture is that the Australian community has a great deal more to do to protect its legacy. And speaking of conservation biology, you are the editor of Conservation Biology. Just tell us a little bit about your work there. I'm the editor-in-chief of the journal Conservation Biology. It is the original journal for the Society for Conservation Biology, which was established in the United States in the 1980s. And the journal was created to provide a home for substantive scientific advances that form the basis for the underpinnings for action in conservation science. So we try and provide the techniques, the procedures, the scientific experiments that underpin the actions we take to conserve biodiversity globally. It's been running since 1985, I think it was. The first issue came out. I've been the editor for 12 years. We received between 900 and 1,000 papers a year. We publish about 150 or 200 of those. The topics are tremendously variable. They range from straight ecology through mathematical modeling to the psychology of human behavior and the ethics of trophy hunting and everything in between. And so it's a wonderfully diverse and interesting journal to read. I'd recommend it to the people who are listening to this. And I wonder, are we on our way to winning this story of conservation and what role does synthetic biology play in conservation? There are probably five, six, seven million species on the planet. We have probably lost in the last couple of hundred years, one, two, maybe 3% of those. 
So you might think, well, that's not a lot. But we, in 200, 300 years, we shouldn't have lost any that we would notice. So the rate at which we are losing species on the planet far exceeds the rate in evolutionary time, the background rate, if you like. About one species a year arises through natural processes and about one species per year is lost globally amongst all things. And yet we've lost many, many, many more species than that in the last few couple of hundred years. We could say that we are at the leading edge of a mass extinction process. Now, there have been five or six of these in the geological past. The most recent one was caused by a comet landing on the Earth and eliminating the dinosaurs and a bunch of other things. We are at the leading edge of that. Now, in geological time, a few hundred years is very, very short. It's a very, very short period of time. If the processes that are currently in place and that are driving extinctions continue for another three, four, five hundred years, then we will have driven a mass extinction process of a kind that has only occurred five or six times in the geological past in the last many, many hundreds of millions of years. So, And we know the cause of this one, it's us. It's land clearance, it's moving species around that do harm, it's the movement of pests and diseases and pathogens between populations, it's overharvesting, and so on. There's a bunch of drivers. We know what they are, we know what they're doing. Yeah, it's, and I like to describe the, the analogy with carbon and climate change. We knew about the effect of carbon on temperature, global temperature, in 1896, when Arenas published his paper. In 1911, there were articles appearing in regional newspapers around the world saying, well, if we keep producing carbon at the rate at which we're producing it, and if the population continues to grow and the carbon emissions continue to grow, we should expect the global temperatures to rise by several degrees over the next several decades. So we knew that in 1911, but we didn't start to do anything until about 2010. We started to do little bits and pieces, but we really didn't start to try and do something significant. And we still haven't done enough, not even nearly enough to head this off. So there's a hundred years between knowing and believing and then doing something. Now, I think we know that we're losing biodiversity. That is not a question. It's not something that we can debate. It's like saying, is the amount of carbon going up in the atmosphere? The answer is yes. There's no question. So the rate of loss, exceptional. And so the point is then, well, should we do something? And the answer would be, well, it's foolish not to do something. It's reckless not to do something. So we ought to act as though there is an imminent and substantial change in which the world's ecosystem function. Now, we don't know how resilient they are. We don't know how much loss we can tolerate and still, as humans, be okay. But we should behave as though it's imminent and start to do something now. The time to act is now and not in 50 or 100 or 200 years when we've lost 10% of things and we think, oh, this ecosystem's not functioning too well. What am I going to do about that? That's too late. That's too late. Hello. My name is Tori Garfield, and I am an undergraduate at the University of Texas at Austin, studying geography and sustainability studies. I am also a conservation and environmental policy podcaster for the One Planet podcast. Because my education puts a large focus on ecology and environmental sustainability, it is such an honor to be a part of this conversation with Mark Bergman, the editor-in-chief for the Journal of Conservation Biology. In a world where knowledge and understanding of climate is constantly changing, discussing how to identify the best expert for certain problems at hand is an essential point in furthering environmental and ecological consideration. 
Furthermore, understanding that the leading way to inspire environmental optimism and positive change is through social will, or the will of the people rather than political will, is key in determining how to best approach climate conversation. For example, in Texas, there are hardly any climate activists in positions of power in our state government. So the possibility of positive environmental legislation getting passed here is very minimal. Therefore, in a place like Texas, the work of nonprofits and protests led by climate activists are essential in advancing the perception of how important climate change is. When society understands the importance of protecting the earth we live on and that there are things individuals can do to help, positive motivation for change will come. However, though optimism in the age of climate crisis is essential, it is also necessary to understand how human influence has spurred negative consequences. As Mark Bergman discussed, anthropogenic influence has caused the Earth's progression toward a new age of mass extinction. There are many organisms that are going extinct that people often overlook because they are not a part of the mammal or bird families, but are instead much smaller, yet are essential in the functioning of each of Earth's biomes. Incorporating this knowledge into my field of study is indispensable for the progression of conservation initiatives for biodiversity among animal and insect species, as well as plant life. Now back to the interview. Could you explain a little bit about the model you've written for biosecurity? Well, biosecurity is an interesting business. It has a lot in common with uh, national security. You have a country like Australia, like the United States, like the UK, that has a particular set of plants and animals and a particular set of ecosystems and they're functioning in a particular way and we want to maintain that status quo to some extent. If we move plants, animals, pests and diseases, pathogens around without thought, then we would have a lot of species in countries that we don't really want that would affect our agricultural systems, our human health and the functioning of our ecosystems and, and could well eliminate native species as well. So there are outcomes that we would rather avoid. And in that circumstance, we try and limit the movement of species. Now, most species moved around by people or as part of commodities, traded on commodities or in containers or indeed on the outsides of containers of trade. So related to international trade, the World Trade Organization has a policy that says that one should make trade as free as possible in a nutshell. One of the reasons one can deny trade between countries is because of the potential for pests and diseases and pathogens to move with that trade. And so uh, the World Trade Organization, those disagreements between countries, New Zealand might want to send Australia apples and the Australians' apples don't have a particular fungus and it may come in on New Zealand apples and harm the Australian apple growing industry and may even harm some other species that are associated with apples. And uh, then... So we, th we think about designing treatments for the trade in a particular commodity to exclude that species, but none of them are 100% effective, so you have to accept some risk. So our tools are about the analyses and the kinds of procedures and the kinds of data that one might need to assure yourself that the risk is sufficiently small that you're willing to accept the trade-off between the costs of the trade and the benefits that the trade brings. And it's that trade-off, which is really a social choice. But our business is to design the models and the data acquisition and the interpretation of those data that lead to good decision-making, that provides us with a basis for making reasoned and transparent decisions that can be communicated to stakeholders and farmers on both sides of a trade deal and all that sort of thing. So you discussed finding the political or the social will and 
There's a lot of exciting solutions some people favor if it's possible to enact earth law, you know, really writing it right into the Constitution or others put forward some green amendments that we see some movement there. What do you favor? What do you find is effective? Some maybe unrealistic. Can well, we already, you know, add this into our constitution? I'm not a person who knows much about the law or about political governance, but my experience with effective conservation action, conservation, in, this is an area in which the analogy between carbon and biodiversity diverges because carbon is a global phenomenon. Carbon atom here is the same as a carbon atom in your room. Uh, but Biodiversity is spatial. The species that are outside your door are different to the species that are outside my door. And the actions that we take are going to be different. And if I do harm to a species outside my door, it may not have any consequences for the species outside your door. So the actions are local and the consequences are local. So it's spatial and it's distributed geographically. So the actions that we take locally are the ones that matter. And the only thing that works is if the people who live near or around or in the ecosystems that we want to manage and the species we want to manage, the people there have to be involved. They have to want to do this. There has to be buy-in by local people to the actions that you want to take to maintain ecosystems, services, or the species that persist in that landscape. Without people, and their willingness, in fact, their enthusiastic participation, conservation doesn't work. Yeah, and we're learning things all the time. I mean, I think it's just like it's new, the science of the microbiome. I mean, we think about species, but also like in, you know, just a teaspoonful of soil is said mm -hmm. to have more living organisms than all the animals on Earth. And so that's kind of really hard to take in your mind. And so how do you really conserve that? Because it's like, you know, the soil health, that what we depend upon it. All these things that we thought were invisible and unnecessary actually are essential. Mm. Well, you're quite right. Well, the vast majority of living things are insects. And most people don't pay that much about insects at a personal level. And I suppose the challenge for conservation biology is, or conservation science is to figure out a way of making people care about soil biota and bugs in tree canopies and those kinds of things. We find it relatively straightforward to engage people to deal with large animals rhinoceroses and elephants and pandas and koalas and bison and all that sort of stuff. Because people like them. They see them and they think that they're iconic and they offer on a flag or we just like them. We just we have a preference for the birds, of course, are the same. And many people like frogs and lizards and snakes. Um, they're a tiny, tiny proportion of all living things, almost unnoticeably few. The vast majority of the things on the planet are insects. Now, um, if we are going to engage with people, we need to think about human psychology, social science. We need to think about how we teach our children about the world around us, what we put in zoos, how we characterize things that are not mammals and not birds, how we represent them in children's books and on TV and cartoons and all in the ways in which we engage with these things so that we start to value them in an intrinsic way. Oh, it's a big challenge. I wish I knew the answer. Uh, yeah, exactly. How do you get people to really care? Learning is an act of care, is an act of love. So, I mean, I guess with your own family, or as you think back on your own childhood, what excited you about these topics and inspired you to devote your life to it? Oh, well, I grew up in central western New South Wales. It's like the Midwest. It's flat, more or less featureless, and there are vast expanses of wheat and sheep and not much else. 
And I remember as a child thinking, I wonder where all those trees have gone because there were tiny little patches of eucalypt forest on rocky outcrops. And I, I used to met my friends were farmers and my relatives were farmers and I used to go on to their properties and look around and think, well, I wonder what this used to look like. It was a really just, a, I guess, I guess the contrast between what I was seeing and what I could imagine had been there very relatively recently, you know, 100 years ago, interested me. Now, I didn't find, I well, went and studied biology, but not particularly with an interest in doing conservation biology. I actually wanted to work on, in the mining industry, on, on mine site rehabilitation. I thought that was going to be my thing. And I worked in that for a few years, but I found it ultimately not very satisfying. And I went back to study and studied in the United States, State University of New York and Stony Brook in New York. And I met there qualitative ecologists and scientists who were interested in the environment and in conservation. And there was a professor of mine, Lev Ginsberg, who was writing models about threatened species. And my professor, Jim Rolfe, and my professor, Bob Sokol, were interested in the ecology of systems and in evolution. And from them, I developed a real interest in, well, why are rare plants rare? And what can we do? What kind of interventions for managing species are going to be effective? And it was that combination of biology and mathematics. I thought, oh, this is the right thing for me. And I really didn't discover it until I was well into my 20s. And I thought, wow, this is interesting and worthwhile. And I can see this making a difference. And it related back to my thinking about, well, what was in this landscape when we first, when my grandparents turned up here and started clearing the place? It was that image that drove that interest. Yeah. And it's interesting how one only finds ones where you can have, you can go into university and just not know, just because you wouldn't naturally, you know, some of these fields are only being developed. They're still just evolving. So that's the so, so what led you to do podcasts? It's a sort of the same question. <laughs> well, I'm an artist, so of course, but <laughs> no, it's a thing. I was just always curious. And I guess I grew up, I went to university before I went to preschool. I was brought into classrooms. So I was always like, why, why? And this is why. Right. Oh, really? But so it's kind of natural that way. But yeah, I know it's it's really important to, you know, we're so lucky, those of us that have can be excited about going to work every day and discovering new things and then sharing that with others. And what would you be saying? It also reminds me of the importance of things, but learning things for a purpose like this. I think that's something that's not focused on enough these days is like adaptive intelligence. You know, we have to, we've been taught, like you're talking about, you know, biodiversity, we've been taught that, oh, we're the top of the food chain and we're master of our environments. And we think that we have this, we do have this privileged perspective, but in some ways we've really forgotten the very practical skills of how to adapt, how to do more with less, you know, not consume so much. And how do we scale back our footprints and what we consume and, you know, how that affects other species. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, I guess the solution to environmental problems is really going to lie in the domain of social science, more importantly than it will lie in ecology or biology. It's a, we can, ecologists can do so much. We understand how populations work and how ecosystems work to some extent. And we can offer advice on what kind of interventions will precipitate biological outcomes, but of course, they're not driving the problems. Those things are kind of fixing the symptoms without fixing the cause. And the cause is human nature. And you're exactly right. It's about how we consume and how we think about what we consume. And I don't know what the solutions are in terms of 
individual thinking and individual actions, because at a, a slightly higher level, community thinking and community actions and community norms and standards about what's reasonable, what we should expect and what we should aspire to. We get that from our peers and what we see around us and well, our workmates and our family and what they aspire to. And I don't know how to shift those perspectives so that we aspire to less in terms of consumption. You know, it, it, we ought to aspire, we humans aspire to more in, in many different ways, and it doesn't have to be about consumption, but I don't know how to make that change. That's beyond my skill set. And I, one of the big changes in our science, indeed, has been in the journal that we were talking about earlier, has been the 90s. It was about the embracing economics and economic theory, decision theory, and mathematics. But in the 2000s and 2010s, it's been much more about embracing social science and psychology. Those disciplines are growing quickly into the space that is conservation science. And that's, I think it's a fabulous, fabulous change in the discipline. Yeah, it takes a mindset, how we aspire to maybe attain more by aspiring to less, but it takes a large you know, re-education. It goes against our capitalist model, which says consume more and more. You need more and more, even though you don't really need it. And it would be one thing, you know, is that we have our population, if we were able to scale back what we consume, maybe this population could survive. You know, we act as though we have two planets, but we yes. only have one. So yes. either we, I feel, you know, we have to address this issue with a population bomb or however you want to address it, or we consume less, realize that we actually could have a small footprint like the other animals we share this planet with. Yes, yes. I agree. I agree partly. And I'm just thinking out loud, but the approach that we might take to this has to involve individuals and communities, and it has to involve rethinking the way in which we approach what we consume and how we consume. We get lots of advice from people already. We kind of know how to do a lot of this too, with what we eat. And I don't know that it's necessarily even a capitalist point of view. I think it's just a, it's human nature to think, well, I could just be a little more comfortable if I had this or that. And my esteem would rise in, the, in, in society just a little bit if I had this or I had that. And it's very difficult to turn those things down or not to pursue them. Recognition, esteem is reflected on what we have and what we consume. And in any kind of political system, I think that those drivers, those drivers exist. I, yeah. Yeah, I think that there are certain enlightened models of capitalism that don't have that imperative of like disposability and consuming. It's just, you know, it's so nice when you actually look at how streamlined nature is. It's so it's circular by design, you know, whatever is waste for one thing actually becomes food for another. It fertilizes the soil, even the trees, you know, they just clean our air. They're not putting carbon in. They are complete. They're beyond net zero. If we could like learn some of that, if our capitalist models could be really circular, so maybe we can have the advantages of a capitalist model, but there's that there's no waste in it, and that would be valuing nature, which gives us so much. Well, there is a, certainly a discipline, an emerging and reasonably well-established scientific discipline on the circular economy. And indeed, it's one of the things that our department studies. The incentive structures, the way in which goods and services are owned and produced and moved through social systems is, is the focus of that work. And, and indeed, we have some systems now that operate on a basis that, have, that effectively is circular. And... We, and they can operate very efficiently, but promulgating that kind of system 
through the rest of our supply chains is a big shift in economic systems. But that is that plausible and achievable in a lifetime or two? That could be done. So I've been studying two different broad conservation approaches, one being land sharing and the other land sparing. Mm-hmm. Do you have an opinion on which could be more beneficial? Land sharing is about, well, we have a landscape and we have to decide, am I going to develop industry, particularly agriculture, to be very intensive and maybe only in half the landscape and leave the other half alone, make it into conservation, strict conservation reserves, or should I have 10% in conservation reserves and 90% devoted to agriculture, but agriculture that's less intensive that has little patches of vegetation and streamside reserves and stuff. And I think, Tori, the answer has to be context-dependent. There's some there's a bunch of discussion in the literature about generally what's best and what's not best. And but I, my personal view is that it will depend upon precisely which landscape you're in, and what kind of agriculture you're contemplating. And it's never going to be ideal to have 100 percent of a landscape devoted to agriculture. But the extent to which we distribute our intensive and less intensive activities, and precisely where and what sort of level of connectivity we retain in our patches of landscape in the relatively undisturbed habitat will depend on the landscape itself and the spatial scale at which we're doing things. So I don't think there's a single answer. It'll depend. And, you know, as you think about the future and, you know, the teachers who were important for you, or maybe it was family or those that passed on important lessons that really opened your mind and set you on your journey, you know, what were some of the things that they passed on to you and who were they? Well, that was, I mentioned Lev Ginsberg and his lab. My my colleagues in that lab, Scott Furson and Rashida Chakaya, are two guys who I was a PhD student with. And we developed a bunch of ideas together. We wrote some papers together and we wrote a book together way back in the 1990s on how to write population models for uh, conservation science. And But we learned those techniques from our professors, from Jim Rolfe, Bob Scofield, and particularly Lev Ginsberg. And Lev, as a mathematician, he had come over from Russia and he was interested in writing models that encapsulated the idea of an explicit accounting of risk, which hadn't been done in that same way previously. And his wife was also a mathematician. She was writing models of a similar kind, but for nuclear reactors, what's the chance that a nuclear reactor is going to go critical? It's a random process. And so it's a random walk and you need to calculate the likelihood that the the process will cross some threshold within some period of time. Now, for for species, it's the same problem. What's the probability that you'll cross a threshold that is go to zero, that is become extinct within some period of time? And what interventions minimize that risk? That's the same way we manage nuclear reactors. We don't guarantee they won't go critical. We just say, oh, we're gonna, I'm going to keep that risk very small. And our approach to managing species is essentially the same. We want to minimize the risk of extinction. Our job is to keep as many species as possible for as long as possible, while also maintaining ecosystem processes. That's the job of a conservation scientist. And we need models for that. And they, back in the 80s, had developed, because computers were you know, relatively new, had developed the tools to do this, and we were able to adapt them to managing species and then managing ecosystems. And that whole process was completely eliminating. I had no idea that existed before I studied with these guys. And they were exceptionally generous with their time and their ideas, and they were great teachers. That couldn't have happened unless I had moved to that. If I hadn't gone to that university, to Stony Brook University, and studied with those people, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. I'd be doing something else. Goodness knows what, but not this. 
I know Stony Brook very well. We've interviewed a number of the faculty. I stayed in the oh. Hamptons. We have projects there with. All right. <laughs> and maybe you know Carl Safina or others. I think I know some. Yeah, yeah. Other students, uh, Ginsburg, I believe, they've mentioned them in interviews. Yeah. So, you know, for some of those that we've interviewed who've devoted their life to helping preserve and protect the environment, like yourself, is for some, there's a spiritual dimension or there's the love of learning or there's just something like as you look around at this planet, it is the miracle. It yeah. actually, we are living in a miracle. It's not elsewhere, but it's this, and we have to do what we can to you know, honor the blessing and the balance of life on this planet and not do everything that we can to destroy it, but just to preserve and protect it. You know, what for you are some of those things that remind you of the beauty and wonder of the natural world? You know, I'm not a spiritual person and I get into trouble with my siblings about this and various people I work with. I actually don't like going hiking. I don't like going camping. I don't particularly like looking at beautiful scenery. It's not, I much prefer being in, in a large city where there is, there's lots going on, which is anathema to, to many of my friends who love birds and things. But I think I'm a walking advertisement for for what's called existence value. It's really important to me personally that it exists, that it's somewhere, and that if I wanted to go and visit, I could. It really distresses me that landscapes are obliterated as they are in Australia, as they are in the Amazon and many other places. We clear land still today globally at a rate that exceeds the imagination and it's clear for agriculture by and large. So land use change is still the primary driver of extinctions. It's still the critical issue and it's driven by the combination of population size and per capita consumption. Those The links are clear. And, you know, that for me, the land use, the fact that land use change is driving this is what motivates me to persist in doing this job. And it also led to our work with expert judgment, which was really predicated by the fact that we were writing models about threatened species and we had parameters, various things we had to know about species to manage them, yet we didn't know. And we thought, well, how do we, where do we get this information from? We have to know it to make a decision. And yet we don't know it. So we guess. So we say, well, we consult an expert. That's what we all do. And we do it when we see our medical practitioner, our GP. We're doing the same things. I'm looking at a symptom. What's the cause? What's driving this? Now, what is it precisely that I need to do to alleviate this? Now, we're looking at this from the point of view of a species managing a species. We were asked by our friends in biosecurity, how do I know I have the best expert? And we were wondering the same thing for our threatened species. And so we did some experiments. And that's when we found that Asking the best regarded person is a mistake. You don't ask that. They're, they're usually overconfident and they know more than not a, a random person from the street is not going to know enough. But if you're interested and you understand the data and the jargon, as we spoke about before, then your judgments will be as good as anyone else's. And then I've got a much wider pool of people I can go to, people who are interested, people who profess knowledge and insight. Get them together talk to them, facilitate the discussion in a structured way and generate an answer. And that's we did that because we were interested in conservation problems. But it has implications for expert judgment in epidemiology and in medicine, in dentistry, in, in social security, in national security, in geopolitics. This question, these same questions and these same constraints arise. And so the results of that work are much more generally useful than just conservation. 
Indeed. Sometimes the common sense answers, sometimes we can become so specialized that we only look for problems that are phrased that answer our specialty. So we have to look Correct. broader. You know? So right. So, yeah. so true. <laughs> we have to. It's not just our specialty. It's, I, I, what is that thing? To a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. <laughs> Sometimes it just needs a Band-Aid, a plaster. <laughs> you know, it's not that. So, well, thank you, Mark Bergman, for sharing your scientific knowledge and how we can attain more by aspiring to less and for helping us find new ways to listen and understand one another and draw from our experiences to, to develop solutions to old and new problems. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Thank you very much for this opportunity. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Tori Garfield with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Tori Garfield. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.